Well, <clears throat> welcome to part two of our series in Ezekiel. For the sake of my holy name, last week we set the scene to Ezekiel. If you couldn't be here, um, I really encourage you to listen to it online. All of our sermons can be accessed online via our website, tmpcq.org.au. I'll recap very briefly. <clears throat> in 597 BC... Um, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invades Jerusalem and deports 10,000 of the nation's foremost citizens into exile. And the action in Ezekiel begins five years into exile on Ezekiel's 30th birthday when the heavens were opened and Ezekiel saw visions of God God was coming to the exiles in Babylon. God was coming to the people who felt most dejected, to the place where he seemed most absent. But we anticipated last week that this was both good news and bad news. The good news, he is coming. The bad news, he is coming. That God is coming in a storm from the north on a chariot throne is, is ominous. And the message is, I'm holy. Watch out. And Ezekiel 1 finishes with these words. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down. And I heard the voice of one speaking. A few of you wished me good luck on the way into church this morning. Um, I prefer to pray. <laughs> so let me pray now. Father, we pray that your word might dwell in us. that you might open up our minds and our hearts to it and it might bear much fruit for your glory. Amen. When I went to high school, I had about a dozen or so Christian friends in my year and there were a few of us who had been exposed to uh, mission or ministry because of our families and as we journeyed through school together we too thought that this was perhaps where God was leading us there was no one moment there was no sort of heavenly vision but we always had ministry in our hearts and therefore we always always had ministry on our horizons it's fair to say my story is very different to Ezekiel's story. My call into ministry is very different to Ezekiel's call into ministry. There are some similarities, but my word, there are many differences. We left Ezekiel at the end of chapter 1 face down, in awe of his vision. And the first words God uses, he addresses him, son of man. Actually, he'll address Ezekiel as son of man throughout Ezekiel. We only actually read the name Ezekiel twice. Son of man is used more than 90 times in Ezekiel. 
which accounts for roughly half the occurrences of the entire Old Testament. And it's a reminder of the contrast between divinity and humanity, between God and his people. Remember that God is out to reintroduce himself to his people. And this must be established from the very beginning. I am God. You are not. Which means he is not answerable to them, but actually they are answerable to him. And as God calls Ezekiel, he sort of paints the picture. Israel has been disloyal, they've been defiant, and they've been deaf. And so first, disloyal. In verse 3 there, Son of man, I'm sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. Israel's history was the sad story of their um, disloyalty to their covenant God. Now, we're actually going to plumb the depths of Israel's disloyalty later in Ezekiel, particularly in chapter, chapters uh, 16 and 23, um, and it's extremely confronting. But for now, the main point is that given their history, Ezekiel needn't have any hope that exile has done the people any good. Second, defiance. Israel is described as rebellious six times in six verses. You can do the ratio on that one. And then in verse 4, the people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Israel is like a rebellious teenager. But it's worse than that. Because those terms, obstinate and stubborn, are used elsewhere to describe one of Israel's greatest enemies. Any guesses? Pharaoh. Very good. It's ironic, isn't it? And it's also very damning. Third, Israel has been deaf. There is this constant refrain, did you pick it up in Maury's reading, whether they listen or fail to listen. And then in chapter 3, verse 7, <clears throat> but the people of Israel are not willing to listen to you because they're not willing to listen to me. For all the Israelites are hardened and obstinate. God's people were never without God's word. It wasn't that they couldn't hear. It was that they chose not to hear. It was a heart problem. They had become hostile to God and his word. But did you notice that in Ezekiel, they would meet their match? See what God does in verse 9 of chapter 3? He says, I will make your, he's talking to Ezekiel, I'll make your forehead like the hardest stone, harder than flint. Like God is preparing him for this challenging task, perhaps even an impossible task, and yet his determination to speak must be stronger than Israel's refusal to listen. Ezekiel's name means, may God strengthen. It's a very appropriate name, isn't it, given his calling. Well, Ezekiel's call differs from other calls in the Bible in that we have yet to hear, and in fact, we will never hear a sort of response, positive or negative, from Ezekiel's own mouth. And, you know, I think we can read between the lines 
here. I suspect Ezekiel probably was reluctant because again and again, God encourages Ezekiel not to be afraid. Why do you think Ezekiel might have been afraid? Just think about it just for a moment among yourselves. Why do you think that Ezekiel might have been afraid? Well, it didn't just have to do with the people to whom he was being sent. But also the message that he was called to proclaim. He's actually commanded to to speak to his own traumatised community with words that would bring further grief. Chapter 2, verses 7 and 10. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious people. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me and it was a scroll which he unrolled before me and on both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. This was not a scroll that you could purchase from the bakery. It ends up tasting like one of those. But this is a scroll made of papyri. What's going on? This is one of the many strange and symbolic moments in Ezekiel. I think it means Ezekiel was to internalise God's word. And notice that the scroll is filled. It's filled. That is that the word of God is is not a blank page. It's not even a blank check. Ezekiel is invited to sort of fill out for himself. No, no, it's already filled. Its message is fixed and is now entrusted to Ezekiel to deliver. And the message was one of lament and mourning and woe. And yet... When Ezekiel eats it, it tastes as sweet as honey. (laughs) You notice that discrepancy? Why? When we read elsewhere in in, in Scripture, for example, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth? And there might be something to that here, but I think it also reveals that there is something fundamentally good about God's justice. God is a, a just judge, not an unjust judge. And humanity has longed for justice, particularly in a world that is characterized by injustice. But what did, what did it mean for Israel? What did it mean for them? And, and this is key, right? God's coming judgment did not mean that the covenant is over. No, no. It means that it's on. 
It means that it's on. And that God has not and will not break the covenant is ultimately good news for his people because God says, when you fail, I won't. So maybe, just maybe, that is why it was as sweet as honey. And yet Ezekiel is left exhausted and disturbed. And so in verse 15, he came, I came to the exiles who lived at Tel Aviv near the Kabar River, and there they were, where they were living, I sat among them for seven days deeply distressed. Or, or your translation might say overwhelmed. The, the word means stunned. It means horror-stricken. It means appalled. We can only imagine the, the dark thoughts that were running through Ezekiel's head for those seven days. Why had God picked him? Or rather, why had God picked on him? His fate, as well as that of the prophets, it seemed, was sealed. Well, a week later, God speaks to him again to impress upon Ezekiel the life and death urgency of the task set before him and so in verse 17 son of man i've made you a watchman for the people of israel so hear the word i speak to you and give them warning from me the the metaphor the image of the prophet as a watchman is rich but it's also very confronting so in the case of a town or, or a city a watchman would be posted high in a tower or perhaps high in a wall and charged with the crucial task of looking out for the enemy and it was their responsibility to to raise the alarm to warn people of 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 any threat and think about it that the lord makes ezekiel a watchman for israel implies what it implies that israel is in danger they're in a war zone There is an enemy about. They need to be warned. But warned about what? Or rather, warned about whom? Verse 17 there says, give them warning from me. But actually, it's probably better translated, give them warning of me. Or give them warning about me. God himself was the enemy that Israel needed to be warned about. The real enemy wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. It was Yahweh. God was going to hold Israel accountable. But notice, who has posted Ezekiel as the watchman to give warning? God himself. (laughs) What enemy would appoint a watchman in his target city to give warning of his own approach? (laughs) And so we have this, this tension between the judgment of God and the grace of God. Verses 18 to 19, the wicked person who refuses to repent Whether warned or not, they will die. In verses 20, the righteous person who 
despite warning, turns to do evil, will also die. There's a lot of death. The warnings are real. But the whole point of appointing a watchman is to save life. See that? And then in verse 21, the righteous person, though tempted, who, though tempted, heeds warning and does not sin, will be saved. So, So even the righteous person will die without the watchman's warning. We're going to look at all this in much greater detail um, in Ezekiel 18, but the focus of this section is not so much on the, the fate of the righteous or the fate of the wicked, but actually on the role of the watchman. Ezekiel is a sentry on duty, and his one and only task is to give warning. Each person, whether they be righteous or wicked, will be held responsible for their own fates, but Ezekiel will be judged on whether or not he has been faithful to his role as watchman. Now, there are many comparisons, uh, actually, with ministry and evangelism nowadays, particularly for those of us who have been called to pastor and to preach. I've been challenged by this text this past week. Because in presenting the good news of the gospel, we must also present, confront people with the bad news of the reality of sin and the danger of judgment. You see, the language of salvation only makes sense if if there's something to be saved from. Being a watchman was, and still is, No easy task. No one likes being warned or rebuked. Let me assure you, no one likes warning or rebuking either. But to not do it is to be like a watchman failing to sound the alarm. It was countercultural in Ezekiel's day. It is countercultural in our day when the dominant cultural atmosphere of Postmodern relativism says that you cannot judge people to be right or wrong. You cannot judge people to be wicked or righteous. But rather, we must understand them simply to be coming from different perspectives. All of what all of which we must affirm somehow. With those who have been sent by Jesus Christ which in one way or another means all those who call themselves to be his disciples are called to speak the truth in love. Our first obligation is to the one who sent us, not to the one, not to those to whom we are sent. And we're not called to success. We're simply called to obedience. Our mission is ultimately his mission. Those who accept our words on his behalf accept him, and those who reject our words on his behalf reject the Lord himself. Well, the strangest thing happens next in Ezekiel. Toward the end there of chapter 3, the prophet is told to shut himself in his house where he would be bound and made dumb. Wait one second. 
how could God say to him, I'm sending you to the Israelites, and then a week later tell him, go and shut yourself inside your house? How could he tell him to raise the alarm like a good watchman and then make him mute? Granted, if he noticed God actually does permit him to speak, but only what God would have him speak. So when Ezekiel does speak, we can be sure that it is God speaking. When Ezekiel speaks, it is because God has something to say. When Ezekiel is silent, it is because God is silent. And the phrase there in verse 26, you will be, made, you will be silent and unable to rebuke them. Actually, I think it's probably better understood as you will be unable to act as a mediator on their behalf or you shall not be an intercessor for them. The tension is, is rising in Ezekiel. Ezekiel, the watchman, is made mute. The judgment cannot be reversed. It is inevitable. Jerusalem will fall. And Ezekiel won't be arguing against it. No, no. He'll be explaining it. And that he cannot speak means that in the immediate future, he must find other ways to deliver his message. And so when we come to Ezekiel 4 and 5 next week, we will see Ezekiel in action, if you will. But for now, God through Ezekiel invites you to become the righteous who heed the warning and respond in repentance and obedience. Indeed, having been warned, God is going to hold you responsible. for the choice that you make. And like the Israelites, you are without excuse. And yet you might be thinking, well, both the Old Testament and the New Testament would say to us that no one is righteous, not even one. And here, friends, is where I get to share the good news of the gospel. And that is that all who believe are declared righteous in Christ through faith in Christ Jesus. But be warned, friends, be warned to claim the righteousness of Christ and yet continue to go on living as you wish would be to do what Israel had. Right? Treating God as nothing more than a life insurance policy. No. He wants your life. Not, not one hour a week. Not, not 10% of your income. He wants you. He wants you. I want to finish with these words that remind us of the ministry 
to which we have been called and the message that has been committed to us. From 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin (coughs) against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen.